So, hello friends, I hope you're feeling well. It's nice to see the sun come out, if, however it may be brief. I don't know. So I'd like to talk about practicing with uh, sister death, practicing with dying and death. St. Francis called her sister death. We don't talk about death much in our culture. We don't see death. We hide it away. We, um, we have... Uh, Funeral homes deal with all the matters of taking care of a body and and then making the body look lifelike. Um, if there is a, a viewing of the body at all by the family, it's it's uh, kind of strange, and um, I think it's. It's harmful and it's a loss because death is just hidden away and it's a part of life. Um, When I was nine years old, my mother got uh, breast cancer and over the next five years she had one mastectomy after another and then a hysterectomy and and finally died uh, when I was 14. And there was just utter silence about the whole thing. I don't know if I was ever told that she had cancer. I guess I was. Somehow I picked it up. But but never was the word dying uh, spoken to me until the night that she did die. And I was, and as we drove to the hospital to see her, my father said to my sister and I, it's possible that your mother will die tonight. <laughs> and that was the first I had ever heard that spoken of. And years later, I, I asked him, you know, why did you not say anything about her dying? And he said, we didn't even talk about it to each other. We didn't even acknowledge that she was dying. And, and I just, oh my gosh, the si- that silence. And, and then my father said, you know, our family doctor, you know, told us not to talk to her about dying. He said, she might give up hope. And the rabbi said the same thing. So... Um, that silence certainly affected my uh, experience and my understanding of of dying, and it was um, it was an underlying preoccupation for many years. And I, I'm I know that each one of you also has, you know, your first experiences with dying and death, and and what that was, and what kind of impression that made on you, and and how you hold the the truth of death within you. And of course, you all are in 
spiritual practice. So uh, that has evolved as well. <clears throat> but we, it's, it's so interesting how we hide away from the reality of dying and death um, to such a large degree. Maybe it's changing a little bit um, with the, you know, with palliative care and hospice care and so on. Um, but there are all of these films and movies, you know, horror films and, and war films and, you know, and there's so much dying and, and death. Um, death is a very important part of the Buddha's teaching, the, the path that the Buddha laid out. Um, it was among the first things that he would teach, taught, taught, teaching about impermanence and, uh, and teaching about dying was the last teaching that he gave. And, and the story of the, of Siddhartha, uh, before he was the Buddha, he was Siddhartha Gautama. And, um, and his encounter with death was, uh, very pivotal for him. Um, and I want to read a, a rendering of, uh, of this story as told by, uh, Douglas Pennick. And it's, uh, I, ex- I excerpted it from, uh, tricycle magazine. But just to preface it, um, for those of you who may not be familiar with the story of the Buddha, when, um, uh, when Siddhartha's mother became pregnant, um, an oracle foretold that he would either be a great world, um, emperor or king, a great powerful king, or he would be a, uh, a world spiritual teacher. And um, Siddhartha's father uh, did not want him to leave his uh, royal duties and and go to be a teacher. So he protected Siddhartha from all experiences uh, which would talk about, which would reflect to him the reality of death. So only young people were allowed in the in the um, royal quarters. Um, one of the stories is that, you know, gardeners would go out every evening and snip off all the dead flowers so that nothing that, uh, no, nothing would speak to him of impermanence because that is a, uh, such a pivotal, a spiritual teaching and a, um, catalyst for us to embark upon a spiritual path uh, is, is understanding impermanence. So he had gone out, uh, he had kind of sneaked out of the palace. He actually uh, he had an experience of um, all of uh, the, the musicians in, in his court were beautiful young women 
Um, and, and, uh, one night as, you know, they were playing and he, he drifted off to sleep and, um, and then he woke up and he saw and he saw them kind of sprawled out, you know, snoring, not looking their best. And, and that was a, uh, kind of, a just a little indication to him, a little, oh, Things aren't so perfect all the time. And, and he, it made him want to see what was outside the uh, confines of, the, uh, of his palace and all the vast gardens and so on. And, and so he asked his charioteer to take him out. And they made several trips. And on the first, they saw someone who was... Um, uh, aging, and then someone who was, you know, quite old, um, like some of us, and, uh, and someone who was uh, uh, sick, very sick. And so, you know, he had not seen this kind of thing before. And so he asked his, his uh, coachman about it. And, and, and his, uh, and he, and he replied to Siddhartha, that we're all this is this is uh, what happens to all of us. All human beings um, are subject to aging and illness, and so th- this is on his third trip. So now Prince Siddhartha again returned to his former princely preoccupations, but he could not so easily forget that he had seen that all are fated to endure old age and sickness. Again, he grew restless and ill at ease. He wanted to know more of the fate of those who live in this world. He summoned his chariot and once more set forth. This time he saw a a procession of men and women weeping. On their shoulders they carried a stretcher. On it was the form of a woman wrapped in cotton, shrunken, brittle, motionless. Her face was gray her mouth open, but she did not breathe. Flies crawled in and out of her nose, but she did not react. She was rigid and lifeless as a stick of dried wood. Those carrying her and all those in the procession were weeping and crying. The prince asked, what is that thing in the shape of a deformed woman? It is rigid rigid and immobile and must be carried by others. It is followed by a small crowd wailing and wearing white clothes. What is this being? She does not seem to be, she does not seem to suffer. What is she doing? The charioteer replied, my Lord, she has neither intelligence nor feeling nor breath. She sleeps without consciousness like grass or a piece of wood. She is insensitive to pleasure or suffering. Friends, family, enemies, all have no meaning for her. Her consciousness no longer animates her body. Sire, she is dead. The prince was troubled. He said, is this woman the only one stricken in this way? The charioteer answered, no, this is the end that awaits every living being. Death consumes all that lives. What is left is a husk, a shell that has no consciousness. The prince was disturbed. He said, and where has it gone, this life, this consciousness? 
No one knows, my Lord, but certainly many religions and many philosophers have taught that a soul or consciousness has an afterlife. Is this true? All we know are visions and words from living men and women. The dead do not speak. Prince Siddhartha reflected for a long time. He listened to the wind fluttering in the palms. He smelled smoke from cook fires. He saw women in their silk robes walking in a park and heard children shouting happily. So we know we will die, but we do not know anything beyond that. Death, my Lord, is the end of our understanding. Then Prince Siddhartha knew what death was. He shuddered and leaned against the chariot. His words were full of distress and amazement. And we cannot stop it. Our minds teem with theories. We struggle and we kill to take control of destiny. We fill the world with dreams. No matter, we will die. No matter, we do not know when or why or for what, or for what purpose. The charioteer did not answer, and they returned to the palace in silence, passing through the villages and forests, passing by men herding cattle, women carrying baskets, seeing that some were happy, others sad, and knowing that none, not one, would leave a trace upon the earth. A vast sorrow and estrangement encompassed him. So we do flee from that feeling, don't we, of sorrow uh, at contemplating that we die and that everything that we have, everything that we acquire, everything that we love um, will be taken from us, we will depart from. I think one of the... um, one of the ways that we see the brilliance and giftedness of the Buddha in this story is, uh, is that he didn't ever go into denial and he didn't turn his attention away from the truth of what he saw. He wanted to deeply understand and, um, and he wanted to make sense of it for himself. The Buddha talked about um, dying and death, uh, and and he um, he called it the most important teaching that that they could do. The most not the most important teaching. Sorry, I mean the most important contemplation that they could do um, was to contemplate that death uh, was near. Um, and uh, there's a there's a story that um, that the Buddha asked. There were three uh, students that were there, and the Buddha asked them, "How often do you contemplate death? Uh, it's very important to contemplate death. How how often do you contemplate death?" And one of them said. I contemplate death in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. And, and the Buddha said, that's not 
enough. And the second one said, I contemplate death every hour. And, and the Buddha said, better but not enough. And the third one says, I contemplate death with every breath. And the Buddha said, yes. There's, there's a story, it's one of my, um, it's one of the stories that I love about in the uh, Pali Canon uh, about this woman, this young woman uh, named, um, uh, what's her name again? Oh, Gotami, Gotami Tissa, Gotami Tissa. And um, she was, uh, she was quite small and she had come from uh, a poor family and she was not really uh, held in much esteem in the community. Um, but she was given in marriage and, and she had a son and she felt that this son, having this son um, gave her value and indeed her her family were very was very happy that that she had had a son and and uh, she felt that she now was respected and and had a place and a purpose and that son uh, a little boy uh, he was a few years old and he was he was playing and running around and and um, and something happened he fell. He hurt himself. He, it doesn't say in the in the discourse, but he died. He said, uh, running all around while playing met his end. And because of this sorrow to the point of madness arose in her. So she, she was so distraught and she was so um, stricken at what this loss represented to her, of course, the son who she loved and also all of the sense of belonging, the respect that she had gotten, um, the honor. Um, and she said, um, before I was one who received only scorn, but starting from the time of the birth of my son, I gained honor. These relatives will now try to take my son in order to expose him outside in the charnel ground. <clears throat> so that was what poor people did um, who couldn't afford a uh, cremation. And so in this, in this sorrow to the point of madness, she took the body of her son and she carried him on her hip as she used to do, uh, when he was alive and she wandered in the city from door to door going from one house to another and said, you know, my son is sick. Is there, does anybody have any medicine that can, that can give me that you can give me for my son to make him better? And, and everybody looked at her and said, medicine will do no good now. And they, they uh, sent her away. And then, but there was one certain 
man who was both wise and very kind. And he, and he recognized, he said, this woman has lost her mind, has become deranged by sorrow. And, um, and the Buddha will know the mess, the medicine for her. And he said, mother, approach the fully awakened one and ask about medicine for your son. And so she went to the Vihara at the time of the teaching of the Dhamma. And she said, blessed one, give me medicine for my son. And the Buddha, taking in her situation, said to her, go, and having entered the city into whatever house has never before experienced any death, and take from them a mustard seed. Very well, sir. And she went on to do that, to, to, to search for that mustard seed, very relieved and, and happy that she could get a cure, she, as she understood. And so the first house she went to, she said, the master calls for a mustard seed in order to make medicine for my son. If this house has never before experienced any death, give me a mustard seed. And, and the response came, who is able to count how many have died here? And so she went to a second and a third and, and got the same response, of course. Uh, this house has seen death. Um, generations, of course, generations of people lived in the same house and has seen many, many deaths. And, and finally, after experiencing these responses, she came to her senses. She came to a, a balance of mind and recognized uh, what the Buddha was was showing her that that death is universal, and and so her madness left her, and her right mind was established thanks to the power of the of of the Buddha. And she thought, this is the way it will be in the entire city. By means of the Blessed One's compassion for my welfare, this will be what is seen. And having gained a sense of spiritual urgency from that, she went out and covered her son in the charnel ground. She uttered this verse, It's not just a truth for one village or town, nor is it a truth for a single family, but for every world settled by gods and men, this indeed is what is true, impermanence. And so she returned to the presence of the Buddha. And, and he asked her, so Gautami, have you found the mustard seed you were, you were looking for? And she said, finished, sir, is the matter of the mustard seed. You have indeed restored me. And the master then uttered this verse. A person with a mind that clings, deranged to sons or possessions, is swept away by death that comes 
like mighty flood to sleeping town. So after that, she um, asked the Buddha if she could enter into the order of bhikkhunis, and he gave her permission. And, um, and she attained, uh, she arrived at the state of arahant, which is fully awakened. So, so much of that, um, I think, can speak to us, this, uh, just the, the human grief uh, of the loss of a son, the loss of a child, uh, the loss of a dear one, um, a parent, a sister, a friend, a spouse. <clears throat> and, and somehow we thought we knew who we were because of this relationship, perhaps, or, or, or this um, gave us a certain sense of, of belonging, connection, uh, connectedness, in our life and and it's not only death that we we seek these kinds of feelings of becoming somebody being being somebody having an identity having a place having a purpose you know we find it we look for that in so many ways um and and some of them are very skillful and relationships relationships of love between between people um, can be beautiful and skillful uh, and the Buddha didn't tell everybody he didn't he didn't tell everybody to leave home and become a monastic. He, he taught people in their lives. Um, and, and he taught many, many householders and, and we continue to practice as householders. Uh, and, and many householders awaken in their lives, in the lives of relationships, many relationships and, and possessions and responsibilities. As monastics have relationships as well. And responsibilities. So it's um, whatever the context, the practice of memento mori, remembering death, remembering that, that we cannot find our true happiness in anything that is conditioned that anything that is impermanent, that changes, that is contingent. Sustaining this this mindfulness, this awareness of of death is um, 
is a teacher in our lives. It's like, uh, just as the body is a teacher, and part of how the body teaches us is by teaching us that its nature is impermanent. And, and the thought of death, the memory, the truth of death, is, um, is a constant teacher. Uh, really, birth and death are happening moment by moment. So when we walk into the meditation hall and we are aware of, you know, the flurry of people around us, and then in the next moment we're taking our place in the hall, then we're gathering ourselves and collecting the mind, collecting our awareness in the body, you know, all of those, that whole, all those flow, those, those risings and, and fallings, passing away of different experiences, different, different feelings of how I am me, how I am manifesting, how I am showing up and arriving in this moment, um, are ways of, of, that we experience birth and death and on a, on a subtle level in this lifetime. And we can look back, you know, at our lives, you know, some years ago, or even maybe um, more recently than that. And we can think, you know, how many times have we said, oh, that was another lifetime. You know, I was another person then. Um, And in a way we were. I mean, I think about things that I, I was involved in, things that I said, things that I did. Um, you know, not necessarily unskillful, certainly some of them unskillful, but, but just recognizing that the, the state of mind from which those words, those actions came um, is not prevalent in me anymore. So that person is, uh, I mean, there's the same DNA <laughs> and, and people walking down the street do say, hi, Daryl, <laughs> if they know me, they recognize me. Um, but sometimes I feel like when somebody from many years ago greets me and I haven't seen them and, and I do feel like, oh, uh, that was a long time ago, and I feel I was very different then. And uh, and so it's really important to remember that, you know, that that's true for everyone, e- everybody, not just for ourselves. Uh, and so we sometimes make assumptions about who somebody is that we see, uh, and and we don't know what world they've been reborn into in this moment, what life they've been reborn into in this moment, and what they're carrying, and, and uh, what, which of the six states of existence they're in. They're in Buddhist cosmology, there's uh, different states of existence, suffering, and uh, realms of suffering, and realms of a balance of suffering, and freedom from suffering, and and realms of uh, pleasure and 
the God realm. But um, it's said that the human realm is the most uh, suitable and propitious for practice because there is that balance of suffering and freedom from suffering so that we can understand it. There's a verse from the uh, Dhammapada, which is a, um, a collection of different sayings of the Buddha arranged um, in different ways, uh, sort of grouped. And... Um, and one of the one of these sayings that I that sticks in my mind is is this one. Unlike those who don't realize that we're here on the verge of perishing, that life comes to an end. Those who do, their quarrels are stilled. those who realize that we are here on the verge of perishing, don't hold on to their quarrels. Uh, My practice is very much about dying. Um, When I sit down to practice, I feel that I'm practicing dying. Um, And uh, I think... Just that that practice, which is so foundational of seeing that thoughts arise and that they pass away, sensations arise, they pass away, um, dramas in the mind arise and pass away. Uh, that's so important. Uh, and... Um, and we, we, we learn so profoundly that we don't, that we can relinquish, we can let go of these dramas and thoughts and, and, and grudges and, and guilts, uh, that we carry. Uh, it, it may take some attention, it may take some, some skill, um, to, to address the complications and how it's ro- they're rooted in our hearts and minds, uh, and we we can relinquish them, we can let them go, we can unhook ourselves from them. There's a lot of um, teaching in in the Tibetan tradition on the bardo. Uh, so this kind of process of dying, the, the, and and in this in the process of dying, the uh, the mind the, these these images come forth, which are mind created, and um, and we encounter them 
And, and so I often ask, well, I mean, I, it's not a question that I ask myself, but it's, it's something that I, uh, attend to, like, if I were dying in this moment, is there anyone that I wouldn't want to see <laughs> that I, I would be, uh, troubled by their, uh, apparition? And that has, um, that has caused me to um, attend to some unfinished business uh, over the course of years of practice. And, and sometimes things that we, we, we have ways of holding um, unfinished business at bay. You know, we keep it under our level of consciousness and then at some point it's just ready to emerge and it pops into our awareness and and that's that's a good thing that's an opportunity to um to give it to give this matter attention and it's it's in seeing and not clinging to what arises and passes away that we begin to orient ourselves toward nibbana toward the it's not a state it's not a thing it's a realization. It's a reality. The reality of um, the deathless. It is, it, the Buddha referred to it as the deathless or the unborn or um, that which is beyond birth and death. As we in our consciousness, we're always conscious of something. We're conscious of uh, the five senses. We're conscious of what's happening, what's arising in the mind. And, and so as we, as we empty, not by pushing away thoughts, but by not grasping them, learning to not grasp on to thoughts and ideas and beliefs and hopes and fears, but to abide in that openness of the, the citta, the uh, receptive, open, aware presence. We are standing very close to... Um, that truth, that reality. Um, and it's said that awakening is an accident, but we can learn to become accident-prone by our practice. Uh, and so, um, so it's, there is no cause to, to 
the awakening um, that is pointed at in in Buddhist practice. Uh, And it's possible that we will awaken in this lifetime. It's possible that um, in dying, when body and mind fall away, that we'll enter into that fullness of um, uh, the unborn, the uncreated. The Buddha said, uh, awakening is possible. If it were not, I would not have taught you the Dharma. But it's not something to strive for. But we simply align ourselves with love, with vir- in, in living virtuously, with kindness and compassion, uh, with insight and wisdom. We align ourselves with that, um, with the truth that, that comes, that the Buddha realized in his awakening that uh, those truths of anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. So, yeah, somebody said um, on the first evening, I think, uh, that their friends ask why why are they interested in Buddhism? It's all about suffering, and uh, and so it's really all about becoming free from suffering. It's acknowledging that how we're caught in cycles of suffering. I want to read a, another poem from this this book, um, "The First Free Women." And this is uh, called Sumedha, Great Wisdom. And this is Sumedha telling the story of how she entered the path. I was wearing a new white dress on the morning I first heard the Dharma. Something was calling, but I couldn't quite make it out. I started spending more and more time alone in my room. One morning, over breakfast, my mother asked me what was going on, so I told her. The Buddha's path isn't easy to follow, my mother said, especially for someone accustomed to getting whatever she wants. Marry the good king, Anikadatta. Enjoy all the things young ladies enjoy, dressing up, being waited on, and going to expensive parties like weddings. Today you want to dress this body up and sell it at a wedding, I told her, but soon enough they'll be selling it to the graveyard for nothing. We are cows chasing the axe. We are soft flesh chasing the cobra's fangs. We are dry straw chasing the torch. We are lovers chasing our own reflections. Mother, we are walking food. The vultures circle 
we lie down and the feast begins. My parents watched as I took a long, sharp knife and cut off my long black hair. Just then, King Anikadatta walked in. He looked at me, blade in one hand, a couple feet of hair in the other. Then he smiled. With your hair cut short, Sumedha, you look even more beautiful. Soon all the women in our kingdom will be cutting their hair just like yours. Come, my love, the whole world is chasing happiness. You and I will be among the lucky few who win the race. Good king, I said, if we spend our lives running after the things of the world, we will die and keep right on running, stealing the things we mean to earn, setting fire to the things we mean to protect, drowning the people we mean to love, and turning into enemies those most like ourselves. I threw my hair to the ground. Anikadatta knelt down, picked up a few strands and let them fall. Then he stood and turned to my parents. You who would have been my mother, you who would have been my father, let Sumedha go. May she find the path and may she one day return to show us all the way home. It's getting dark now, my sisters. The sun's going down, and soon we'll all be going our separate ways. Can we sit here together just a little while longer, not saying anything at all? The path will go on, rising and falling like a song, and in the end, you will find yourself as one lost at sea finds herself finely washed ashore. Listen, can you hear that? The sound of the wind in the leaves, like a wave coming on. Go on, shake up the world, set yourself free. So let's sit here for just a little while longer and breathe together. Go on, shake up the world, set yourself free.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.